0: We come again in the Gospel of Mark to Mark chapter 9. Our scripture reading would be verses 42 through 50. And I'll be reading this passage from the English Standard Version translation. The Lord Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck We have prayed uh, several times in this service. We've even prayed for the preaching of the word this morning. But again, we would ask that as to your scripture, uh, our understanding of it uh, rests upon uh, your delight in giving to us the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And that is what we would pray for. We know, Lord God, that as your spirit has inspired this word, as scripture is from you, that it is also your Spirit who works within our minds and hearts to understand it. But not only to understand your will and to understand your word, but to be moved in such a way that we would be pleased to follow you, to serve you, and you would enable us to bear fruit in every good work. This is what we would pray for this morning. Father, we desire that our lives would conform not to the patterns of this world, but would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit through the scriptures to do this. Cleanse us, Lord, uh, with your word in every way. Uh, Make us vessels that are fit for our master's use. And we would ask that in our lives we might be salt and light to this generation in which we live. To your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. Now, in this passage... Uh, we return to one of the most solemn and somber sections in all of the book of Mark. Uh, It brings us to consider the reality of hell in order to measure the seriousness of sin. Uh, In his own remarks upon this passage, uh, the good bishop J.C. Ryle, uh, back in the 19th century, said, repeating what we mentioned last week, it is such a concise but wonderful quote He says, it is not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell. So to avoid saying too little about hell and to treat this passage according to its natural parts, last week we looked at verse 42, which is all about the reality of hell and the ruin of others. That is, the fact that we can actually participate in the spiritual ruin of others. This morning, verses 43 to 48, the reality of hell and the ruin of ourselves. And then next week, we'll look at the reality of hell and proper living as a Christian in the Christian life. Now, the context here, we must remember, is, is, is significant. Of course, the context is always significant, but particularly to understand the application of this passage with respect to the disciples who were the audience and with respect to us. We have to remember who are the disciples and what is going on with them. Jesus is training them. Jesus is preparing them to be the foundations, to be the spiritual leaders, to be those who are going to establish the Church of the New Covenant. And it's going to be their responsibility Uh, To guide and to guard all those who come to Christ. It's going to be their responsibility to fulfill the great commission in which Jesus said to them that they must teach everything which he had commanded to them. So we find here Jesus then warning his disciples with respect to that responsibility warning them, as it were, to keep a close watch over their own lives and really over their own doctrine because of their own capacity to stumble themselves and because of their own capacity to stumble others in terms of being leaders of the church. Now, in everything that's said here, we need to recognize there's also a proper application to us as believers today. And I would sum up that application and the main point of this passage in these words. Our need for Christ is directly proportional to the power of sin to separate us eternally from God. And therefore, we must find in the work of Christ the true deliverance from the path that would lead us to hell. I want us to think about that. Our need for Christ is directly proportional to the power of sin to separate us from God eternally. That is why we've got to find in the work of Christ, by faith in Him, the true deliverance that will deliver us from that path that leads to hell. Now, we can divide this passage, uh, verses forty. 43 to 48, into three particular points, three particular truths that we can find here. Uh, The first would be our capacity, our own innate capacity toward our own spiritual ruin. So we'll look at how Jesus teaches that. Secondly, how the very nature of spiritual ruination is measured by the existence and reality of hell. And then thirdly, how in response to this, there must be a radical repentance. There must be the response of a radical kind of repentance. So, in the first place, Jesus is pointing out the capacity we have within ourselves to bring spiritual ruin upon ourselves. And the way that he does this is to focus upon Uh, common but very, very precious body parts. He focuses upon uh, the hand, the foot, uh, the eye. Uh, These things are most precious to us as human beings. None of us would want to be uh, losing the use of a hand, the foot, or an eye. But at the same time, uh, these are the things about us that can so easily cause us to stumble in a way that would bring about spiritual ruin. That's what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, the point that Jesus is emphasizing in what he has to say about cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot, and plucking out the eye, is essentially this, that it's far better to part with what is most precious to us than to possess it here and now, but then later, at death, to be cast into hell. That's the point that Jesus is saying. So these body parts represent what is most precious to us with the idea that what is most precious to us can also be the stumbling block that sets us on the path to eternal separation from God in hell. The important thing is to see this, that the hand, foot, and eye are not in and of themselves things that are sinful or wrong. But nevertheless, they can be the very causes of that stumbling and spiritual ruin in a person's life. Now, in a later episode, not too far further on in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10, in verses 17 through uh, 22, uh, a man is going to come up to Jesus and say to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the response of Christ is going to be, well, what does the law say? And so this man is going to recite uh, the commandments, um, uh, Jesus is going to recite the commandments of the law, the second part of the law, uh, you know, on your father and mother, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, and those things. And the, and the man is going to say, all these I have kept from my youth up. And Jesus is going to say to him, well, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give it all to the poor so that you would have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And the story says that the man went away sorrowful, for he had very great possessions. Well, that story illustrates the very point that Jesus is talking about here. His great wealth which in and of itself is not an evil, but his great wealth was in fact the thing which stumbled him and what was actually right before God. Essentially, Jesus is teaching this, that whatever is precious to us, whatever will keep us away from God being truly God in our lives, is the stumbling block. That is the sin which endangers our soul that which would precipitate the spiritual ruin which would set our path on toward hell. It's another way of seeing this. Uh, If the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that requirement before God is violated when we actually set our hearts on something else, to love that something else, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In this regard, think about the immediate audience of Jesus, his disciples. One of those disciples sitting there is Judas Iscariot. Judas needed to hear these words. He did. Judas needed to heed these words. He did not. And in a few short months, he betrays the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He illustrates this point that Jesus is making about our own innate capacity to bring spiritual ruin upon ourselves. Because something will be more precious to us than the Lord Jesus himself. Matthew Henry has a couple of memorable and practical comments, succinct, great comments on this passage. He says, Self must be denied that it may not be destroyed. Further, The idols that have been delectable must be cast away as detestable. So here is the truth about the fallen human condition. We have the innate capacity to bring spiritual ruin upon ourselves by putting things in this life, regarding things in this life, as having a higher value, a more significant value, a value greater than that of prizing Jesus Christ above everything. We have within ourselves the enemy of our own eternal souls. So Bishop Ryle says this, there is a need for giving up anything which stands in the way of the salvation of our souls. When I describe this this morning, when I say this this morning, uh, it, it might sound like this is a message for unbelievers, for nonbelievers, for people who have not come to Christ. But we know in the history of the church that there have been many Many who have professed Christ to whom Jesus himself says he had to say on the last day, or will say on the last day, I never knew you. And so this is not just words that apply to those who haven't yet come to Christ. It really applies to all those who who are are those who profess Christ. Are we truly ranking Christ above everything else. During this week, I was thinking about, much about uh, Jeremiah and his times. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9, where the Lord through Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked who can understand it. And and, and woe unto us if we hear these words and automatically think, no problem, I've got Jesus. But the real issue here, the, the point that the Word of God must grip our hearts with is one that we always have to deal with and fight with as Christians. Is Jesus Christ my true first love? And and in the weakness of the flesh, I can never say yes. I have to say, oh God. Oh God, have mercy upon me. Because I need Jesus to be first and foremost in my heart and in my life. Now, the second truth that Jesus is going to teach here, um, so he's going to emphasize the first point even further with this, is that we should measure uh, the seriousness of the power of spiritual ruin within ourselves by remembering the reality of hell. Uh, In this sense, Jesus is presenting hell as the standard of that seriousness with which sin can cause us to stumble. If we value something more than God, it doesn't just mess up our lives. It doesn't just present a a few uh, stumbling blocks, a few small stumbling blocks, a few complications. I love that phrase when people say, well, help me to understand this, and they say, It's complicated. Sin is not one of those things. It's just complicated. Sin is devastating. But notice what Jesus does here in his description of hell. He doesn't use the vanilla term. I will confess that I often use the vanilla term. Eternal condemnation. Eternal separation from God. Those things are not untrue. But they're vanilla terms. Jesus doesn't call it that. He doesn't use words that might in any way soft-pedal the nature of hell. Rather, he presents the hard truth without making it any softer. Again, this is because of the seriousness of stumbling is to be measured by the nature of hell. So Jesus tells us, Hell is a place of unquenchable fire, verse 43. It's the place where the worm does not die, or the fire is not quenched, verse 48. This will be the outcome of treasuring something in this life more than treasuring Christ. This is what happens when we have something in our lives that is of greater importance than God himself. At the same time, we we recognize that, that... The the truth about hell, the reality of hell, this is a hard truth. It's a hard truth. It's hard to hear about it. Uh, In his book, The Gagging of God, uh, the New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, makes reference to this subject as, quote, grisly, unquote. Um, Then he goes on to write about the the flood of, of, uh, of scholarship that's out there that tries to mute, that tries to, in some sense, make hell softer than it actually is Down to downplay the nature. Now, downplaying the nature of hell is not a recent phenomena. It's not something of the 20th century. It's not something that we find only today. Again, the good bishop J.C. Ryle had to address this in his day. Uh, Preachers and theologians and and common church people were avoiding Jesus' descriptions of hell. So Ryle says, these are awful expressions. Now the word awful in his sense was uh, arousing great awe, but also arousing great dread. He goes on to say, and this is significant. There is no mercy in keeping back from men, to keeping back from men the subject of hell. Fearful and tremendous as it is, it ought to be pressed on. Excuse me. Reading somebody's writing that's of the 19th century, I sometimes don't get the cadence here correct. But it ought to be pressed on all as one of the great truths of Christianity. Our loving Savior speaks frequently of it. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation often describes it. The servants of God in these days must not be ashamed of confessing their belief in it. And and ultimately, here is why we must not be ashamed of this hard truth. The language that Jesus uses to describe hell, the unquenchable fire, the outer darkness, the place of the worm that never dies... These are ways of expressing the truth that it is God's own wrath which brings the torments and painfulness of hell. The misery of hell is more than the mere absence of God's presence or the absence of God's blessing. The misery is that which Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. The descriptions which Jesus uses are the ways of expressing the truth that it is God's wrath which brings the torments of hell. It it isn't Satan inflicting pain. It's not a bunch of demons torturing people. It is God's own just and holy wrath against those who have not loved the truth but have loved themselves more than God. Jesus died for that. To minimize hell is ever to minimize the work of Christ. To downplay hell is to downplay the seriousness of sin and to downplay how great the love of Christ is that he would bear that wrath in our place. So the measurement of the seriousness of hell is this hard truth about hell. Did I say that correctly? To to measure the seriousness of sin is this hard truth about hell. But then thirdly, Jesus expresses that there must be a radical response to any stumbling block that could bring this ruin upon us. Jesus presents this radical response, as the response of what we would call repentance, in this figurative language of you know, cutting off uh, the hand, cutting off the foot, plucking out the eye, uh, that, that this not must be done in order to keep someone from stumbling. Now, uh, virtually all New Testament commentators have referred to this as radical amputation. Uh, so New, New Testament Baptist scholar James Brooks, for instance, writes, Whatever endangers spiritual life must be totally removed even as a surgeon amputates a limb that endangers the life of the rest of the body. So in the strongest possible language, Jesus is telling us that this is how we have to deal with anything in our lives which would ever bring about a spiritual ruin, anything that would come between us and God. There must be this radical separation. There must be a radical repentance and turning away from that which causes us to sin, to stumble that is between us and God. So Matthew Henry, once again, always such incredible wordsmith. He says, we must put ourselves to pain that we may not bring ourselves to ruin. The matter is brought to this issue, that either sin must die or we must die. Yet, there's a problem here as we listen to what Jesus is saying. It's entirely right that Jesus would call upon us to this radical repentance. Entirely right that that, that we would be called to repent from anything and everything that would cause us to stumble and sin. Anything and everything that would stand between us and God. We really have no choice in the matter. It is imperative that we agree with God that anything which leads us away from Him is dangerous to our spiritual lives. Here's the problem. This radical response of repentance, this command to repent, as we read this passage, can look like something that we must do and look like something further that we have the power and ability to do. If we do not think deeply enough about what Jesus teaches, we will think that Jesus is commanding us to repent and that we have the power in ourselves to do this radical repentance. But it's not so. Back in chapter 7, in the Gospel of Mark. And in his rejection of the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus pointed to the fallen human heart. He says it's out of the heart that comes every single evil that troubles and destroys the human life. So in the figurative language of radical amputation, if we follow Jesus logically, we'd have to say it's not just the hand, it's not just the foot, it's not just the eye, but it's the heart that's going to have to be amputated and separated from the body because it is the heart that is the source of all of that which would ever cause us to stumble. But to pluck out the heart means we're going to die. In other words the heart which we have as children of Adam leads to death and hell. We need a new heart. As Jesus said in Nicodemus, we need a new birth. We need a new life. As Paul said, we must be new creations. So what Jesus says here about radical repentance can only be understood in light of the gospel. Christ who knew no sin, had to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He Himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing except sin. But we have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, and gave himself up for us. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But this strength comes from grace. Because Jesus said that his grace is sufficient for us, for his power is made perfect in our weakness. And we are weak. But while we were weak and helpless, Christ died for us so that we would have this treasure of salvation by faith in Christ in jars of clay so that the all-surpassing power would belong to Christ and to God and not to us. Therefore, it is impossible for this radical change of a radical repentance apart from anything but the new reality and the new life that God has granted us through faith in His Son. St. Augustine wrote in his confessions, O Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. And so when Jesus calls us to this radical repentance from anything and everything that would keep us from following him, it is a repentance that he himself must give us by his grace, a grace which we will pursue. So may we ever be praying that we would have hearts to hear the gospel so that God might grant us repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that we would come to our senses and escape from the snare of the devil who seeks to hold us captive to do his will. Yet, always remembering this, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Christ in you is the hope of glory and it is Christ who will enable us to forget what lies behind and to press on and upward toward that wonderful goal, heavenward, in Christ. It is Christ who enables us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is Christ by His Spirit who is at work within us to will and to do His good pleasure. It is Christ, God working in Christ, who began a good work in us, who will also continue it and complete it unto the day of his coming. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we remember deep and solemn truths this morning in order that we might more deeply see the great and joyful truth of the gospel that apart from Jesus Christ, we are spiritually and wretchedly ruined for all eternity. But in Christ, in the grace of the gospel, you have rescued us from ourselves and from your justice and wrath, that we would have everlasting life with you. And Father, when we encounter those things that would turn us away from keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we would say, Almighty God, work again and again and again your gospel grace for us and in us that you would turn us from our sinful ways and turn us back to Jesus and enable us to die again unto sin, to live more unto righteousness, and by the working of your Spirit be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, knowing that this grace by which we are saved is a grace that Jesus at your right hand is ever interceding for on our behalf. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Remind us that we have been crucified with Him. It is no longer we who live, but Christ living in us. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. So in and through Jesus, we can repent, and believe and live to your glory. Amen.